what is what does patience mean though that's i was thinking that we didn't really clarify what that meant um patience typically means like when you're at the doctor's office and he's running he or she's running late and then you try and be patient or i know the one when you call the cable company or the airlines and they thank you for being patient when you're on hold for like 40 minutes <laughs> i always wonder how they know i'm be, i mean i'm not being patient so i don't know why they thank me but the um what does it mean so i think what does it mean to be patient does it mean being able to endure the long wait on hold is that what it means is that the meaning of patience why is patience a big deal in this buddhist psychology which it is does anybody know and you can you can unmute yourself by hitting your space bar like the practice of patience one of the um six perfections yeah so what is it what does it mean uh to practice it i think you're mentioning to us that it's um not while we're in the hot tub without stress that's not practicing it no practicing it means when you're challenged Okay, practice does not mean when you're on a holiday and the person's late for bringing your food, your, your tapas. <laughs> you don't mind because it's been... Okay, so the reason the patience, so in this definition and everything in Buddhist thought theory and in psychology, is it has a definition, just about everything. So the reason patience, what it means is it's the opposite of anger. Okay? So when we're sitting waiting for the cable person to pick up the phone and we're fuming but you know we're just enduring that's not patience so patience me the reason we develop patience is that it's that it when we talked last week about our goal here is to develop a healthy state of mind because a healthy state of mind is a happy mind and then in the first class we concluded or i concluded that uh, happy is what everyone's searching for and it, happy means it's kind of a mundane term, I admit, but it is what everyone's looking for. They call it happiness or contentment or safety. So uh, in, the, in the question of whether we're an innie or an Audi, how are we looking for this happiness? We're always, each instant, actually, we're looking for happiness. Each, every single instant of our existence, we are looking for contentment, satisfaction, happiness, pleasure, whatever you want to call it. That's what we do 24-7. 365 every year that's a big statement and hopefully i can uh kind of explain that a little more as we go on so unhappiness then is you remember this is the choice so the choice was not whether to be patient or not okay the choice has to be first whether to be angry or not and the choice to be angry or not only comes when we begin to become more sensitive and more um, aware of what we want. And if what we want, I'm making these assumptions because we've talked about what we want is a healthy mind, then we can start having to, to really look at what, it, what, is, what does it mean to have a healthy mind? Okay? Class two. So when we talked last week, a healthy mind is one that is not overwhelmed by the disturbing emotions okay 
So I don't know if everyone in this this room, we'll say room, okay? I don't know if everyone in this room accepts that as, as the problem, okay? Or is that the challenge, you know? Because, to, you know, does it mean to overcome our disturbing emotions or to overcome the coronavirus and find a vaccine? As a metaphor, as an example. Which does it mean? So we believe, or if you look at the psychology, the way that psycho- our minds work, Overcoming the coronavirus with a vaccine does not get rid of the problem or the challenge or the desire for happiness. Of course, we want to get a vaccine or overcome it out there, of course. But we're kind of challenging our, our, our long-held assumptions of what it means to be happy, okay? So this is the goal. We have to, we have to remember why we're here. We're here because we want to well, the same reason we're anywhere is, is we're trying to find mental balance, mental happiness, contentment, meaning, whatever you want to call it. The shift happens, as we talked the last two classes, the shift, which takes us forever to make, honestly, uh, is the shift from blaming the external or looking on the external world as the source or the, of our happiness or the blame for unhappiness. So patience then arises, excuse me, <clears throat> Patience arises from the understanding that my internal world is kind of a mess, but also my internal world is also where all my uh, hope and happiness uh, resides, at least in potential. So, you know, for someone trying this new, like being patient all week or, you know, challenging patient or actually challenging anger. You know, I said last week about that thing about, you know, if you come out of the supermarket and your car is dented and no one leaves a note and then you, you get kind of pissed off and then your friends say to you, yeah, you have a right to be angry. Yeah, I would be angry. We don't buy into that because that's true if you accept that the external world is the source of our happiness. But once you say, you know, I, wow, anger doesn't feel that good. And when I'm not angry and the absence of anger feels much better, and you start taking our own mental health and our own happiness into our own hands, then, you know, you begin to not necessarily give in to those cultural narratives, those cultural messages. Basically, everything in the culture, and this, sorry to say it, basically everything in the culture is a wrong message for happiness. And if you really want to understand the psychology uh, you really want to understand psychology, as my teacher Lam Yeshi used to say, just watch the advertisers. They understand human psychology better than anybody. They know how to hook you. Okay? So this is our job. It's interesting. It's just a question. Again, you don't have to accept what I'm saying. You know, this is just my interpretation, but you have to make your own interpretation. And, and it's, again, I, I bring it up each class because this is not an easy transition. The transition from you know, my happiness and well-being, my fulfillment is from getting a good career, from getting a raise, from changing jobs, from having a, a beautiful, handsome partner, from having uh, kids that are well, well adjusted and not dysfunctional, to living in a society where the pollution is, is, is under control and there's not much traffic, people, not much violence. Those are all important. Don't get me wrong. But it has to do with that thing we started with intention, intention. Do, you, do we keep moving towards those things that that will make me happy? And the answer to that is yes. I mean, we have to start with 
being honest. We're, we are hypnotized and we're not in control. We can't help it. When we, go, when we finish this class, or maybe even during the class, we start thinking about what we're going to do next. And the reason we think about what we're going to do next is because we have a, a, this is what's weird, is, you remember I, we talked about the Buddha teaching, the very first thing he taught about was the truth of suffering. Well, what he meant by the truth of suffering, another way of understanding it, if we weren't in the nature of suffering or discomfort or dis-ease, then when you sit down to watch TV or whatever you, it is you do or sit here, then why do you need to do something after you watch the TV? When you sit down to have dinner tonight and you think about or had it, think about you know, the special thing you cooked or you're going to get or make, why do you have to have something after that? You know how that thing happens? You just want something sweet afterwards? Or you just need something to drink? Or you just need to like, oh, I just want to kick back. I'm really full. I ate too much. I ate the right thing. Well, the reason that's to connect with what we mean by suffering is there's never a sense of satisfaction there. Honestly, this is, where we're, this is what I'm interested in, okay? I'm not interested in giving up sushi or, you know, whatever it is you like or eat. That is not the issue because we already just, we already discovered the problem the, the the source the solution is not outside of us so nor is the problem so the solution is not going out for a nice meal and it's also not the problem does that make sense go to nice meals it's fine the problem is what's happening internally because when we go out for a nice meal when we're going to sit down and eat and we're going to watch something on tv or whatever it is we do read something then we come to that object, that activity, we come, and it's subtle, but we come because we think it's going to satisfy us or make us happy, if I can use just sort of mundane terms. And it doesn't, because if it did, you know, people say, yeah, I, was, oh, I really got a great book, but God, I fell asleep after 10 minutes, right? Why? I know people say because I was tired, <laughs> but the thing is the mind never stops moving toward. This is the great, this is the great trick. The last class, the fourth class next week, we're going to talk about why and how that happens from Buddhist psychological point of view. Okay. What the great trick is. There's a big, big con job going on by this, by the misleading mind, not by the entire mind. It's by the afflictions. Okay. Uh, any questions? Any want to make comments? This is just all review a little bit from last week, but of course we always there's no review because everything's interrelated. So anything come up? Any? Nope. Okay. Keep going. Okay. Okay. So we got to here. We talk about now. Uh, just to conclude from last week, the review sort of thing, uh, it doesn't really matter. Uh, Buddhists like, love lists. I'll make that clear right now. <laughs> if you don't know that already, Buddhists love lists. I don't know what it is. Um, so they're not, these, these lists are not written in stone. They're schematics, okay? They're, they're trends. They're tendencies, okay? But we don't have to get too hung up. You know, we look, like I think I mentioned last week, 
Well, where's fear? Fear seems to be a big one. Okay. So don't worry about that. What we're just saying is what disturbs the mind? What disturbs the mind? Now, we're not saying how yet. The dynamics of that comes, will come now and a little bit next week. Okay. And then we talk about having a choice. Okay. But we don't have a choice if we don't know what, if we don't know what we don't know. Okay. So I asked last week, I didn't get any answers. If there were no people on this planet, would there be a coronavirus problem? How many, how can I do this? How can I take a poll? Denise, can you take a poll? How many say no? There would not, or how many say yes? <laughs> I don't know. Either way. I'm going to write chat. my put your answers in chat. Okay. I mean, I like people that, if you have something to comment, so what do you think? I'm looking at the chat. Maybe. Patrick, that's not <laughs> fair. And then others, maybe. Um, Denise Smith says no. Any others? People are afraid? Uh, Andrew says no. Depends if there are other beings. But I said if there are no people on the planet, no beings on the planet. Oh, no beings. Okay, well, you know, in Buddhism, <laughs> the, word, the word people is used for all beings. It's funny. I don't know why that is. It certainly would not be a problem for people. So where's the problem? Problem is a concept. The problem comes from the mind. Okay. So, so exactly. So coronavirus problem thinks things are going great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not a problem for the coronavirus. It's loving it, right? <laughs> People are the problem. Okay, I'm gonna. I have to move my chat thing here. Uh, so, but we say that we kind of know it. But then, how is our approach to the coronavirus? It's still external, isn't it? Again, not to say that we don't deal with the environment. I'm not saying that. But if we think the coronavirus is a problem, the problem part. What's the problem now? Completely different than what we typically think. You know, our thinking changes. So what is the problem? Problem is people are going to get sick and lose their jobs. Okay, what's the emotional What's the emotion around that? People are dying, Heather says. So, fear? Huh? Would it, be, would it be fear? Okay, so fear is an emotion, right? Mm -hmm. Fear is internal, right? So even somebody said, Heather, I think somebody said, uh, people are losing their jobs or they're dying, stuff like that. Is dying a problem? Why is dying a problem? Just to be provocative. It's a problem to those who get left behind because they're attached to that person who dies. Right. Or they're um, by the way, I, I hope you guys understand if I'm being provocative and do this, it doesn't mean I'm being mean, okay? <laughs> because I don't mean that. So a problem for the people left behind. Mm-hmm. And it's a problem for the person dying too, because they're losing their body and 
everything that they wanted to get or you know that they worked to get this whole life right so there's probably a lot of suffering for that person too okay where's the suffering it's mental anguish right mental anguish right yeah that person's having or or fear loss yeah but it's still mental right it's still internal right just to be clear that we're, we're pushing this i'm pushing my agenda so it's still fear. Do you know what llamas open? You know what the, you know what the llamas say about dying? <laughs> they say it's like going home. <laughs> they look forward to it. Now, doesn't mean everyone has that, uh, what's the word, opportunity <laughs> or has that experience. Okay. Uh, we say most people dying. It is frightening and we don't know where, you know, can't say where they go. But, but. My point, just to push it to the extreme, is when we get control over the mind, so much control that we can control the emotions, the disturbing emotions. We can even control things. So then we can control our death. And it doesn't mean being immune to people's feelings. But in the case of our own death, and we're not going to go into this level of philosophy, but, you know, we, we logic seems to imply and experience implies that we don't end at the time that we die we continue something continues in terms of well what continues is our, our consciousness subtle consciousness continues and then it takes a new rebirth so uh where's the problem well the problem is the anguish and the fear and the unknowing okay those are all curable in this life that's what we're trying to the message we're trying to get across okay that's pretty amazing so for Lama Zopra and Boucher, death is no issue at all you know, I believe uh, it's he says like going home or the yogis. I think it's like going on vacation. The other thing he said is, oh, you, you get to see all the you get to uh, connect with great people. <laughs> so I don't know. That's a possibility. I don't know if that's true for all of you know for most of us, but it can't. It's that's the, that's the possibility. So I'm trying to change my slide, and it's not changing. How come it's not changing? There we go. So what makes it a problem is just that, okay? It's the attitude towards it. Now, granted, most of us have no idea any other attitude other than being fearful or, you know, letting go, loss. But there are other attitudes, Okay. That's what we want to say. There are other attitudes. And we're not, it's not this class we can do that. We're trying to just make the point that this mind of ours that each of us possesses is a huge entity that's not even been tapped. Its potential has not even been at all accessed. Hardly at all. I shouldn't say at all, but hardly at all. Okay, so remember that uh, what we're usually doing is constantly trying to get what we want but don't have. Okay, so with the coronavirus, just to keep it, keep it consistent we're trying to get what we want but we don't have a vaccine safety protection okay that's how we spend our time when we watch the news we're trying to get or the read the news or whatever we're trying to see well how far they come with the vaccine or with treatments or we spend our time getting what we don't want okay we found out we were somebody today who was diagnosed and now we're going to get what we don't want okay or not being able to go out to dinner okay and then constantly trying to keep what we do get, which is the things that we want to get. 
But just like that, like that food, the meal, everything we get, uh, then we spend time trying to preserve it. Okay? This is where we spend our life. So we try to preserve things, out, external things that are in the nature of change, which means they're impossible. It's impossible to su sustain. Nothing is static. This is what we call life, okay? This is what we call life. <laughs> it's kind of funny, but kind of sad. Okay. So I think with uh, disturbing emotions, and with the coronavirus, one of the main things that comes up is anxiety. Is that right? I think it's right. Okay. So anxiety. Can I read a couple of chat comments to you? Yeah, yeah, sorry, please. Uh, is it a problem to be sick? People are the problem. Problem is a concept. The problem comes from the mind. Depends on who decides what a problem is. So uh, with sickness, for example, you remember, I think, I don't know, it was last week or the week before, we, uh, we're born into a state, okay, just to use the traditional terminology, when, when uh, uh, the truth of suffering, when Buddha taught the very first thing he taught, was the truth of suffering. And then when, when he detailed that, he said, well, we are, there's, by being a human being, we're the, the they're suffering of birth itself. They're suffering of aging. They're suffering of sickness, and they're suffering of death. And then he mentioned four others that I, I mentioned on the slide earlier today, uh, earlier than last week. So sickness is what we would say is yes, it is a suffering. There's no way to get away from it. Um, this body will get sick. Aging and sickness are very related too, but of course, uh, when you were sick, we're not anyone can get sick. So yes, the problem with sickness is very, very hard to control your mind when you're sick. Have you noticed that? Uh, people who meditate, uh, people, who, whatever, just try to be better person. When you're sick, you're really pushed. You you can't really meditate. Most of us can't. You can get to the place where you could. So. The sickness is sickness. Um, the problem of sickness is that it takes it control of the mind uh, and influence uh, invades the mind, but it doesn't have to, of course. But at our level, it just just does that. And then what was the other one? Is a concept? Oh, could you read another one, Denise? Denise, you're muted. Sorry, one of them says, is it a problem to be sick? Only uh, if you, the only problem with being sick is, oh, it's better not to be sick, but just I just described it. The problem with being sick, it's very hard to control the mind, not have negative emotions and disturbing emotions. Well, especially fear. Fear's a big one, but also uh, you just feel just not focused. You can't, it's very hard to focus when you're sick. Was another one? Uh, losing people you know due to this virus is sad. I think we talked about. Yeah, we talked about that. It is sad. Mm -hmm. um, I wonder if if even losing people, is it possible for the mind to be so healthy that it doesn't get overwhelmed by the sadness? 
right? Sadness is a natural human emotion. I mean, even, you know, we could say compassion has, can sometimes have an element of sadness, but it's, the, it's different. You know, there's sadness with clinging and grasping and there's sadness with warmth and affection. They're not, not exactly the same thing. Empathy. If, if I can share some of this, for me, has like there have been tears through this, but I think the tears have been almost some relief. The mm -hmm. tears have been this, wow, I have needed to take a look at some of these issues that I've been going too fast to even look at. Mm -hmm. And then there's almost a shedding of a skin of that speed. And then it's scary to go, there's this, there's this new thing, I, there's this new raw skin. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you're, I'm feeling excited to be in the new, excited to be more slow than before, and afraid of the unknown within it. And then I just try to hold my mind and say it's going to come as it should come due to my karma. Mm -hmm. So where we can go with that as well, yeah, is then it, it ideally that opens us up to other people's predicament who haven't had the opportunity to uh, have any instruction in the in the in the ideas you can you can be different around all this. So you know rather than just and that is what you were saying, but you know it can have a sound like oh I'm doing okay you know I I got it you know I'm using this to grow and. Uh, but uh, and it's actually there's some systems of thought that that encourage that you know in this tradition I mean they're really healthy is you use all of that to get a better understanding of connecting with others of course and a better service to others so that that's going a little bit into another arena but but yeah yeah okay anything else I think it's it's really a tricky balance because in Buddhism a lot of the teaching. Um, can seem very like can seem very cold if they're not balanced with compassion and love. Yeah. Because when you hear a lot of these things like, oh, it's just in the mind, there's like this implying of like what's wrong with you for reacting this way. Right. You know, there's kind of like a feeling of blame, whether it's whether that's the intent or not. So it's I, I just think it's a really tricky practice to to not go into like beating yourself up and feeling like, you know, just pushing away everything and also to not like grasp onto it all is really there the way we think it is. And yeah. Well, yeah, thank you. Um, challenges not to lose, uh, you know, we say this practice is uh, has two wings to it, like a bird. The wisdom, which we're talking mostly about, you know, sort of knowledge and wisdom in this sense. And then, of course, compassion. We're not talking a lot about compassion. But, but to not understand that compassion is 50% of this path, you know, or this practice is really important. You know, again, going back to patience, we're talking logically about why it's logical to be patient. You know, because then you stand up to your own anger. But we didn't talk at all about the benefits to everyone around us. You know, people who are angry, for example, just, just to diverge for a second, people who are angry, like as a personality, people, you know, it's kind of natural. You don't want to hang around that person as much. You know, they, they're kind of, 
repel repel you the energy itself repels so anger energy people pick up on that in the same way patience or war excuse me warm energy people pick up on that and if you if we think about those people we really like or you know we're kids you know our favorite aunt or grandmother or whoever you know the neighbor you you trace back it's because of a sense of warmth that they shared with you it's not because they were angry or not because they were greedy or not because they were you know whatever you know, any of those disturbing emotions it was because they were attractive and what makes people attractive is the energy that they emit. And the energy you emit is from healthy emotions, not the harmful emotions. And so that's, that's very important to remember. So just being patient, I'm not sure is very, you know, I mean, patience has a sense of calming for other people as well. It just naturally has that effect. Okay. So that's the compassion side as we would, if we were to develop that. So anxiety is something that comes on. And then I just had this as a definition. I don't know why, but this is just the Western definition of uh, from the DSM-5. Anxiety is defined as a state of intense apprehension, uncertainty, and fear resulting from the anticipation of a threatening event or situation, often to a degree that normal physical and psychological functioning is disrupted. Now, coming to Buddhist practice, when we develop our meditation practice, our mind training, we become much more aware of what it is that this, now that's a disturbing emotion, what that was described in that first thing, because it's not dealing with actual reality, the anticipation of a threatening event. But in the moment, where are we? You know, we're not even, so we get so caught up in the future, our, our mental image of the future. So from our point of view, that's not healthy. It's not saying, Oh, there's nothing out, you know, it could take over the country and the economy could be really bad in, in three months or worse in three months. It's not saying that. It's about how you interact with that mental image. It's about how we interact with that concept. It's how we interact with that narrative. And when we hear it, some of us more than others believe it is true. You know, we watch the news. Some people say they can't watch the news anymore. But, you know, that's because they're so clever at, at saying that what, what they're articulating on the news is truth, right? But it's not truth. It's a description. It's a description. And if we can, it's a little bit, it's very much like when our kids used to get scared in movies. Uh, this is what I used to do. And I say, hey, wait a minute, you know, hey, did you know there's a cameraman over there behind that? And did you know that that's makeup and that's, you know, just coming down, you know, kind of describing what's really happening, right? I mean, the, the whole deconstruction of it. And then they're not afraid. So we, we need to do the same thing. We need to see our world. And this includes this coronavirus and this includes this terrible economy. And this, uh, we do need to put a little bit of deconstruction on it. We do need to see it more as like a movie. It's not the same as a movie. It's like a movie in terms of how we invest in its reality. So isn't it funny how we watch something and, and if it's really a good program, a good movie, we get totally sucked in and we cry or we get angry. We get all those things, but that's not actually what's happening at all. It's just pixel. And I, what is it? You know, it's this film, you know, it's actors, unless it's a documentary, of course, we're not seeing it really for what it is just in terms of its basic form. Okay. So that's how we're trying to explain this relationship with what's going on with anxiety around the coronavirus and things like that. Okay. Um, well, the, the, the third bullet point, fear is the emotion. Uh -huh. Yeah. 
I'm sorry, but I, if I can ask one more question, is that why they take the three poisons and break them into 84,000? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. If that's the effect it has, that's good. Is it? I mean, because let's say. There's so many details, right? Right. So if 21,000 are around anger, mm -hmm. all we know is the word or the descriptive something about that emotion as anger. Mm -hmm. If we break it down into one word within that anger, that is one twenty-one thousandth of anger. I see. It becomes well, smaller. Yeah, I don't really know. I, I always, to be honest with you, and I, I'm probably this is probably heretical to say, but I think the eighty-four thousand is a little arbitrary. <laughs> I think it's to make the point. Maybe there are eighty-four thousand um, because they say it a lot. But I think for us, if we break it down into the three, which I think I'll cover, I'll cover again, is anger, attachment, and ignorance. Any subtle emotion, any like I said, fear doesn't show up, for example, on, in the list at all. But fear, if you start to deconstruct and analyze, it's probably related, you know, related with, 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 it can relate with all three. You know, attachment, you know, fear of losing your health, for example. Uh, it can be aversion, something you don't like is coming at you. You know, you're anticipating something you don't like, so you have an aversion. So you move away from people, uh, the coronavirus. You know, you, you social distance becomes aversion maybe for some people. Like when we're talking about being in the supermarket and someone doesn't have their mask on or they're not staying six feet away, what do you do? Okay, so that's aversion, just to be clear. I'm, I'm not saying it is aversion. It, it tends to be aversion. So, so, but what do you call that kind of aversion when it's just irritation, for example, or it's fear? So, yeah, anyway, to answer your question, I think there's so many subtle uh, uh, iterations of the, of, the, of the disturbing emotions and the three poisons, as you call them. Yeah. Does that answer your question? I think so. I was just, I was thinking the remedy to something being so oh. big when you were mentioning deconstruction. That's why there's 84,000 different interventions, practices for each one of those subtle things. Of course. So we all struggle with attachment, let's say. But we don't just do one practice on attachment. It depends. Yes. So that, I think, speaks to your, your question. You know, my form of attachment might come up as with food. And someone else's form of attachment might come up with they, they feel uh, they can't separate from people. They have, you know, um, a dependent relationship with people they feel scared and so those are both attachment but obviously they will need the most likely need different interventions at least in the short term level okay that's how i think of. okay thank you that's good fear is the emotional response to real or perceived threat whereas anxiety is anticipation of a future threat so in that case if that's what anxiety is according to western psychology that's not i don't know if it's that helpful to have anxiety Okay, I'm not sure it helps to feel anxious about a future threat. Okay, and then we'll just leave this. We'll go on from there. Okay, so let's talk about something more refreshing. Okay, not that guy. He's not refreshing at all. Um, so what is the mind? We have a mind, right? Do we accept that we have? <laughs> Do people accept that we have a mind? <laughs> Not sure, huh? Maybe we just have a brain. 
Is the brain and the mind the same? No. No. Okay. Can people vote? I want to see some votes. How many say that? Can you, uh, Lauren or Denise, just tell me what the vote is about? Okay. How many say the brain is the mind? The same? Not the same. No. Yes, we have a mind. No, not. Okay. Mind and brain are not the same. We would have to define mind. Yep. I was going, Lauren, I was going not defining it so I could be tricky. Okay. So we have to investigate this. This is the main topic of Buddhist, of all Buddhist paths. Is it the mind? Oops. The mind is, okay, so the mind is clear. What does that mean? This is not the definition of mind, by the way, but this is just the quality of it. So mind has a quality of clarity, like the sky. And when you think of the sky, of course, we're not talking about the blue sky or the black sky. We're talking, because blue is not the sky, is it? Is blue the sky? Is blue the sky? Mind is clear like space, we could say. Okay. But the problem is that it's obscured by the afflictions, the delusions, and the mental, mental disorders. Okay. So this is good news, by the way, for us. The good news is the mind is clear. It's actually, it, the definition of it is here. It's clear. And it's able to perceive objects. It cognizes. I like the word experiences. So if I say, everyone just think about, uh, think about the house you grew up in as a child. Okay. So in that clarity of mind, you're experiencing your house, aren't you? That's the mind that's doing that. Okay. So that's the mind. It's clear and it knows, it experiences. So space, space is clear, isn't it? Space is clear. Does it cognize though? Does space experience? Does it know things? Okay, it doesn't. You can, add, you know, by the way, when we're done today, you maybe make some notes of things you want to research about, you know, just investigate. Because uh, you, you don't have to accept what I'm saying. For me, this is stuff, you know, I've been studying a long time on this and, and digesting it and thinking about it. So this is the definition. You need the definition so you can do some research. So the mind is clear and it cognizes. So a plant, we say, and I don't want to get in debate about it, but plants, we say, don't have mind. Okay, just because they react, does not mean that they have the quality of clarity and cognizing, okay? Smoke reacts when the wind blows, for example. So, although we don't believe in chopping down trees and plants because they have so many living beings in them, but, but it has to have this quality of clarity and cognition. Ants, mosquitoes, they do have that same mind as us. Not the same quality, but they have the quality of clarity and they do cognize, okay? They cognize by flying over to something that has blood, you know, or the ants cognize whatever. Okay, so that's their cognition. That's why we say they have mind, you know, and uh, you can take animals. 
Animals also, they have experience, they experience the world, their world. Ants experience their world. Fish and birds experience their world. Now their experience of their world is not the same as us because of their mental capacity is different than ours. Okay, their cognitive abilities are completely different. They're not as sophisticated, we say. Okay, uh, then there's other beings. You know, it's not just animals and us. We we believe that there's six different kinds of beings. It includes you know uh, celestial beings and you know kind of like angels and those kinds of things. And then the, then there's animals and then there's spirits. You know, spirits. People experience spirits. Few people do. Uh, those are not their their consciousness, their mind. They cognize. They have the clarity and cognition. But there's all of us are full of all this other stuff, right? We're full of the disturbing emotions. The ant also is is has disturbing, but he has or it has its own quality of disturbing emotions. It's a little bit like uh, um, uh, if you take a person uh, who's in a with dementia. Or maybe in a in a a nursing home. They're a human being. We're a human being. So in in, in death by definition, we both have a human mind. Okay, but you can see the quality of those minds. I mean, you have to just make inference, right? The quality of the minds are very different, right? The way they cognize is very different. So it's the same when we talk about any other creature, there's animal or whatever. They have their own reality and their own way of cognizing. And they see things. That, my mother, I think I mentioned, she's 99 and has had uh, dementia for a very long time, 15 years, 16, you know. And she sees things that I don't see. Now, they could be there. But her reality is different than mine. Okay? So even though we all have these human minds, it doesn't mean we, have, we share the same reality. We don't have the same experience. You know, look at a schizophrenic, okay? So why is that different? So that schizophrenic is still the human being with the human mind, but has something else going on that fortunately we don't have going on, okay? So this mind that we're talking about, that's form. so now it's clear, and it's, this is very important. So it's formless. What does that mean? It means it doesn't have any physical properties to it, which means it it's not atomic. It's not molecular. Okay? It, and now, the brain is formed. It is molecular. It is atomic. So that's one way we say that the mind and the brain are not the same. We're not saying that the mind and brain are not dependent, interdependent. Our hand is not our brain, or not our mind, but the mind is—it's de dependent. They're interdependent, aren't they? It takes the mind to tell me to raise my hand up here, but this body is physical; it's form, and my mind is formless. Okay. And the last point on there: an impermanent phenomena means something that changes is produced; it's constantly in production. So in this time that we spent together so far, we have produced countless mind experiences, haven't we? Every time I look at the screen here, I'm, each instant I'm creating, some say 65 mental experiences 
each instant. Instant is a snap of the fingers. So each instant, there's 65 mental imprints, mental experiences. There's another text that says there's like 283. It's really arbitrary because that means they're, they're divided up, which they're not. You can't find space between them. But well, just for the sake of meditation, you start thinking about 65 in every instant. And there's probably two or three instances per second. And I don't know how many seconds in an hour and so on. So that's the number of mental experiences we're going to have in these two hours. And we're all different. We're all having different experiences. But that is the quality of the mind. So therefore, it is changing, right? It is impermanent. It's moving moment to moment. Changing moment to moment. It's being, we say it's being produced moment to moment. It's in production. Another way of thinking of there's a cause, effect, dynamic happening every instant. Karuna. Yes. First of all, it's 7.30 for if anybody wants to do a two-minute break. Um, no such thing as a two-minute break. Quickly before that, would we be having more mental imprints if it were in person as opposed to on video? Different ones. Not necessarily more. Mm. Well, you know, different ones. Because you could say, okay, you see, you shouldn't have said that before the break. I have to answer that, right? <laughs> so how, so we have five, we have six senses, but essentially we have five senses that are form of the body. Smell, taste, touch, tactile, uh, sight, and hearing. Mm -hmm. Each, those are, we call those sense, uh, we call them those, those senses are connected with our mind. And in the mind, um, there you go. Okay. If you guys don't get a break, you can blame Denise because she brought it up. <laughs> so what happens is the mind, okay, so I told you it's clear and knowing impermanent and we talk about six consciousnesses which make up the mind there's many things that many qualities of the mind so these six consciousnesses are the eye consciousness the nose or smell conscious the hearing consciousness the taste consciousness and the tactile consciousness they get all six five i mean then we have a mental consciousness and to understand the mental consciousness it's it's not physical but the mental consciousness, how it can be easily understood, is when you sleep at night, you're having an experience, aren't you? And you, see, you might see colors and, and people you know and all that kind of stuff. That's the mental consciousness, okay? Having that, those experiences. So we say the five sense consciousnesses are dumb. What we mean by that is they don't, they just sort of see things and hear things, okay? Um, but they're not actually thinking about them. Once the thinking starts happening, that's the sixth sense, the sixth mental consciousness, okay? So what I was going to say is, throughout whether, you're on, whether we're together in the same room or not, you know, maybe you're smelling less things, or maybe you're smelling more things, maybe you're hearing, but you're, and your hearing is going to be different because it's through a microphone instead of live or through a speaker. Um, we, you know, I'm taking drinks of water. Maybe I wouldn't be doing that if I was teaching live, things like that. So, no, it's not, I don't think there's less imprints necessarily. It doesn't depend on whether we're um, doing a video feed or not. 
Okay. Uh, you want five minutes? Two minutes. Two minutes? <laughs> let's She's say tough. two minutes and five minutes is probably what's going to happen. Okay, let's say two minutes and not make everyone feel guilty for taking five. Anything else? Some, anyone need to say something? No? Okay. Yeah, I have a question, Karuna. Um, when we were on the slide about fear and coronavirus and mm -hmm. afraid of death, like what's coming alive to me recently is I've been doing a lot of plant shopping, you know, and I, I probably bought like 20 plants, but I always think like I need to stop because what if I die and what am I going to do with all these <laughs> plants? Is that like anxiety or? I love, that sounds great. <laughs> okay. Because um, it just sounds like a kind of a morbid thought and it's like shopping in general when I'm like trying to buy stuff or, you know, around the house, I'm thinking, what am I going to do with all this if I, you know, if I die? Yeah. Well, I have to clear it up. There's different ways to look at that. Um, I mean, when I said, so I think, uh -huh. so as we train more and more, right? And what we do, as you know, is what we do is we make life more and more meaningful. So what becomes meaningful changes, doesn't it? So what's meaningful, you know, at different stages might be, you know, a good career, good education, good partner, good family, you know, those things that are okay. You know, they're okay. But, not, but in and of themselves, they're not what the purpose of life is. Uh, when we start practicing neuromental development, because we can see that the, like the potential of the mind is such that uh, as we get more and more in touch with it, this unbelievable, I mean, unbelievable depth of mental quality that can be developed, then things don't look so exciting anymore. We don't get excited about going out for dinner. We don't get excited about plants and flowers and decorate our house. However, there's, there's, there's a caveat. So in, in certain practices of Buddhist practices, like in the Hinayana tradition, then they do very much limit, you know, the, the, the approach is to limit one's possessions and distractions and that sort of thing, the external world as well. Uh, of course, in the Mahayana, it can change depending on attitude. Now, uh, they say that the best, they do, they say the best practice or antidote to laziness and to developing one's practice is by remembering death. Okay. And we're not doing, doing a class on death in this con at this time, but just briefly, uh, the meditation on death we have <laughs> is that it includes three, three main points. And we, we do meditate on this because we actually hold the opposite view. And the three main points or that death is definite. We don't hold that view. We have people dying around us. People will say, yes, yes, death is definite. But the second point, which is the time of death is, is uh, uncertain, okay? So we never ever think that we're gonna die today. And that, according to Buddhist psychology and philosophy, is completely wrong. Why? Because we are gonna die today. Even the day that we're dying, we don't, we don't believe we're going to die that day. It's amazing. If you've been around dying people, and I'm generalizing, of course, but around dying people, it's really hard to get to the point where they, they accept they're dying. 
you know, it's really sad. I mean, cancer treatments, things like that. And, and it's, again, I'm generalizing, but, uh, so the time of death is uncertain and we look around people dying, 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 dying. It's definite. Yeah. But I'm not going to die. And if you say, Oh, are you going to die? People say, Oh yeah, I know I'm going to die. But that actually, no, it's not a mental, uh, it's a miss. It's a myth we hold in our minds that number one, we're going to die definitely. Number two, it could happen any instant. With, a, with the uncertainty of death also comes the fact that there's many, 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 many more conditions contributing, could contribute to dying than keeping us alive. So it's just a fact. Okay, there's not much keeping us alive other than this breath going in and out. Very fragile. Okay, the third one, the third one is what helps. There is something that helps. If those two don't, you know, if those two, then what do I do? Well, what we do is then we develop our, our spiritual qualities, which is the mental internal qualities. That's the only thing that really helps. Okay. Um, so in one way, it's good what you said about seeing the meaninglessness. It's actually meaninglessness because the way of buying the plants, but what, you, we, what we should do as the Mahayana approach is we don't stop buying plants. We change the motivation around buying them. So typically, I think what you are saying that becomes meaningless is because maybe, and I'm just projecting, okay, this is myself, I'm buying them because, you know, they make me feel good right now, and this looks bad over here, and it needs some plants or whatever. Okay, those are very short-term. That, that could be the motivation that I feel uncomfortable with that bare corner over there, and that discomfort will go away when I buy a plant. So that's the mundane motivation, which most of us have. So the transformation, and this is a long, long, long conversation, so I'll just leave you with this. The trans, what we do is we don't reject that. We transform it, and now you go, wow, if I got people coming over, make them much more happier. If I can get some beautiful flowers in the corner there, it'll please their mind. The very least, that's, that's wholesome. Okay? That's wholesome. So... Yeah, it's not that we just give up on everything. Lama Yeshe used to say that we were ridiculous because we had the most beautiful things in the world, but we just reject them. He said, you shouldn't reject them. Just don't grasp. Just don't cling to them. I hope that helps. That's yeah, so it would be whole, more wholesome if I said, I'm going to buy these plants and offer them. Yeah. Okay. So anything that, anything that goes against one's own self, what we call cherishing, right? Self-fulfillment uh, is considered a, an unwholesome action. However, when you do it for someone else, you're, you're entitled to be satisfied too. You know? You're included in that. It's not like this you know, mohair jacket we're supposed to wear or something. You know, it's, it is about making others happy, and we're, we're part of the others. It's not... You know, we got to make, you know, make ourselves, it's not like being so morose that you don't enjoy the flowers. Lam Yeshi was the first meeting I ever had with him. Uh, I was at the, you know, the, the course at Copan, and I had been in his talks, and I was just enthralled by this immediate connection, love affair. And I hadn't met him personally, and I was walking around the monastery grounds one day, and he'd always, you know, and I, I just bump, ran into him in the garden. A garden, and mostly Tibetan monasteries, they didn't believe in having two very um, 
put much time into gardens because monks traditionally in the vows they're not allowed to dig in the in the in the land because it, it can kill insects and things like that but Lamyesh was very untraditional so there he was in the garden he wanted a really beautiful garden in the monastery because it pleased people not for himself so i also i go around the corner there he is with one of the young monks he's gardening and he and he said he says oh how's it going are you, are you enjoying the course and and uh, like that and he says well anybody who knows me knows i love flowers he did. He always buying seeds and so why? But they all made beautiful offerings to people. That's how he felt. So transforming it. Okay. Boy, that's a long answer. Hope that's helpful. Uh, what time is it? Okay, I'm gonna keep talking for a few minutes. And then we'll do a little practice, little little mind training, and uh, then we'll come back. That sort of thing. So let's go for a few more minutes. I don't want to leave you hanging right here. Mind, so there's a thing about the mind, the definitions. And then, uh, so the mind also, you can break it down into six consciousnesses, which are the six senses. These senses have corresponding consciousnesses to them. They also have corresponding objects. So what you see with your eye cannot be seen with your nose. Okay? What you can hear with your ear, you can't hear with your eye. And same with the six consciousnesses. So the, the smell consciousness only, only records smells. Okay? Now, next to six consciousness, we also have these, all these mental factors. That's getting to the point where I was trying to get to. Like anxiety. Okay? Or like uh, love. You know? Uh, affection. Equanimity. Those are the positive ones. Now, the 51 mental factors that you see there are divided up into uh, wholesome and unwholesome and a couple others. Okay, I'm not going to go through the 50. If you ever want the 51, I'm happy to articulate them to you, but I don't think for this class right now. But they include, uh, they include the six disturbing emotions I, I presented last week and be, beginning of this class. So in those 51 are things like anger, attachment, ignorance, pride, doubt, and wrong views. I think those are six. Did I say six? And then there's 20 secondary disturbing emotions, okay? Like jealousy and envy and spite and those kind of things, okay? So that makes uh, 26. And then there's 11. I wasn't going to do this, but just, just to give you hope. There's 11 wholesome mental factors, like love and equanimity and nonviolence and nonharmfulness and faith and things like that, okay? So those are where all that stuff lies. It's all in there. Okay. So I say six primary and 20 secondary. The primary three, we talk about three, are attachment, aversion, and ignorance that Denise brought up a little while ago. Those are the main things we want to focus on, okay, for now. You can forget the rest of the stuff I was, I was mentioning. Uh, so this is the mind. Just another schematic for you. I'm not going to spend time here. Okay. Feelings are part of the mind. Discrimination is part of the, Discrimination means it's black, not white. That's a lamp. That's a chair. That's what it means by discrimination. Uh, discriminating, okay? Okay. Now, when we perceive something, so the coronavirus, <laughs> you have to have these three things to perceive the coronavirus or whatever, right? You, you, you read something, so the object might be the news, the evening news or the newspaper. 
and it says coronavirus. And you can actually generate a mental image of it, don't you? That as so the sense organ is you're reading the newspaper. The object is the news, the person on there. And then that that's nothing. That there's no experience yet. Because you need a consciousness to experience, right? You need the mind. Mind is the experiencer, right? So this is what a perception is. Okay? So every perception has these three. If there's no mind, there's no perception. If there's no newspaper, there's no perception of that. If there's no sense organ, there's no perception. Blind people don't have this one. They have the hearing one and the smell and taste and things like that. Okay? You've got to have all three to have an experience. So now, we're talking about the corona. Well, let's go on. So when we, everything we perceive, every instant, we get a sensation or a feeling. And it's so subtle, we don't even know. So when you watch the news, I'm just sticking on the corona, coronavirus thing because it's so dominant in our, in our conversation these days. So something's on the news and they tell you whether you're watching your favorite president or whether you're watching your favorite newscaster or whatever, uh, then you're having a sensation. Remember those 65 instances? I'm uh, sorry, 65 mental experience in every instant. You're having these, an agreeable, neutral, disagreeable sensation. And you cannot have any two of these or three of these at the same time. You can only have one. Okay. I love this, that phrase. I, you know, I really love him, but God, am I angry with him? <laughs> like, I don't know if you can have both. You can't have them at the same time. Can you believe that? So it, 65 times every instant, there is a sensation of agreeable, neutral, disagreeable, or pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Okay? Still, no big problem. The problem starts next. Karuna, may I ask a question about that? You yeah. show that as a Venn diagram where the three are overlapping. And yeah. so it looks like you can have multiple disagreeable uh, slash neutral. Right. Uh, the reason I did that is because they're all, always moving around to each other. But technically speaking, they should be touching maybe on the on the rims of those because just to clarify um the mind can only experience one at a time you can't have two perceptions of anything whether it's a sensation or anything uh, it's interesting it's serial like that okay and it's it's not uh you can't have two perceptions at the same time it's interesting I don't know about a Buddha, you know, or an enlightened omniscient mind is different, right? But we're talking about us regular perceptions. So I should change the slide next time. Probably. If that's if that's the message it's giving, it's not like that. You're right. Okay. Anything else? No. Okay. Uh, this is, I'm not going to really go into this. All I'm trying to say is that when you're per having a perception of the news, uh, the problem arises from, has, has two components. You're having this sensation, right? We just, we just covered that. 
Now, what does that sensation lead to? It depends on two things. It depends on the imprints you carry on your consciousness. So let's say, uh, well, people have different, so you, you and I might both be watching the same news and you will have, might have a different reaction than I have. I get angry, you get scared, or you get hopeful, or you go, ah, it's just a bunch of crap, right? That has to do with what kind of imprints you have, okay, on your conscience from previous relationships with that kind of thing, okay? That's like your personality. And then, then those stimulate these afflictive mental factors, so I get angrier the more I watch. And then next time I watch, I'm angry again, you know, and the next day I'm talking to people and I'm telling them about, did they say the news and what happened? And, you know, can you believe it? And I'm just creating more imprints, right? Correct? Okay. So this anxiety that we're talking about is, is caused by, these are the three, again, three mental, three poisonous minds of attachment, aversion, and ignorance. So, um, unfortunately, I can't, okay. So do, so a mental image or thought arises, okay? Again, visualize yourself at the television or read the newspaper in this context. And due to past experiences, we have an imprint. And this is where we're trying to get out of this. Uncontrollably, we respond according to those imprints. We're talking about impatience before, okay? And that's because we, haven't, we don't confront these imprints. We just are controlled by them. And then we believe they are true. Okay. My perception of that situation or that person is true. It's not seeing as merely contextual. It's seen as true out there existing. And this is what we're going to get into next week. So as a result of that, to the degree that I believe it's true, and the intensity of that brings up an affliction, okay? Anger, because they're not doing anything about getting more ventilators or whatever the, the, the daily narrative is, okay? Does that make sense? And then we talk about, yeah, no ventilators, yeah, no ventilators. And now you talk about the people who agree with you and it's all, you know, isn't the government stupid or, you know, you know or isn't it great and that sort of thing. Newsom is great, whatever. And it's just the more you talk about it, the more you, the more the the belief of its trueness is reinforced. What we'll see next week is these none of these are true absolutely, but we think they are, right? Does that make sense? We see them as true absolutely. We don't see them as true just relatively, based on a lot of different factors like our opinions, our mental our mental imprints, uh, who we hang around with. The, the coverage that the news, the spin that they're giving it. All these things are just contextual, but we don't see it that way. We get irritated or whatever we do because we see it as true. Then what happens, we cling to that, you know, we, we immediately go, God, turn off the television. I can't watch any more of this, you know. Or I don't want to read the papers. What's it, what, how many more deaths today? That's this clinging and grasping that starts to happen. <clears throat> okay, this is a disturbed mind. That's the reason we're bringing it. this. We're talking about how does the mind get so disturbed? Now, when the mind's very trained, 
it just, uh, well, it's more than this, but one of the things it does is it has this quality of observation. It has this quality of awareness. Okay, so a lot of times we try and develop mindfulness, awareness, mindfulness. The best way to develop mindfulness is to get rid of this stuff. <laughs> because the natural result of watching and, 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 and intervening in this process, the natural result is awareness, which is really cool. Because the natural awareness is not the opposite of this, necessarily. It's a spaciousness. Because you're now watching the process. This is what we meant by being out of control. Okay? The, word, the root word of anxiety means to constrict or squeeze. Isn't that great? Constrict or squeeze. And in Buddhist psychology, that translates as grasping and clinging. Just, as Lama Yeshi said, enjoy. Just don't cling. Guess what? Pretty hard to do. But, but that's what we try to develop. And the ultimate remedy is no clinging through understanding, through a view. You know, if you see uh, you, you know, something on television that you don't really like, that clinging is very strong and so it convinces us that the view we have is true. So the clinging gets stronger. The more we say it's true, the more concrete we see it, the more clinging there is. Yeah. Someone had something to say? Yeah. Karina, can you go back one slide? I like looking up words. <clears throat> I didn't know that, that the root word of anxiety means to constrict, constrict or squeeze. That's what we're doing when we're anxious. We're squeezing. We're not spacious. We're not letting go. We're not flowing. We're holding. And there's, there's nothing you can really hold because everything's moving, right? Does that make sense? How can you hold on to something if it's, not, if it's in perpetual motion? This is what we're talking about next week. We do that because we don't see things properly. Okay, okay so let's, uh, let's leave it with the monkey. Well, there's so many things to talk about. Okay. So why don't we just uh, try something now? Okay. So, excuse me. In a comfortable position with the uh, back straight from your crown of your head to your tailbone. Not rigid, but straight, alert. Okay. A, anatomy, so your head slightly bent. Uh, your hands on your knees or your lap. If you're sitting in a chair, then the feet just, it's best probably there's flat on the floor. But really comfortable, you know, Something where you can leave, leave the attention 
of your body behind in a second here. Then just do a quick scan over from the crown uh, down your face and muscles. If you see any tension, just relax the face muscles or the crown muscles or sense of sensation of, of lightness. Release it from the shoulders, the neck. The scan down through the chest and the upper back. Through your stomach and mid and lower back. Just let everything flow out if there's any tension. Through the through your uh, hips and thighs, the calves, ankles, feet, just, just to relax. Make sure your arms are not tight against your body. They're relaxed, a little bit of space. So that's the anatomy. And the eyes are gently closed or slightly open. It's, it's your personal preference. And in breathing, we're gonna focus the breath as our anchor, usually at the nostrils. Without any sense, we're not controlling the breath to speed up or slow down or be calm or what. It's just the breath's just doing its natural thing. And paying attention at the nostrils, unless there's a lot of agitation, then you can bring your attention to your abdomen and the uh, in and out of the breath at the abdomen. And then the counting. On the exhalation, you count one, next exhalation two, next exhalation, exhalation three, and so on up to 10. And then back down to one. And then D is distraction. So you don't get penalized for being distracted. You get penalized for not catching the distraction. Okay? So you don't have to start your counting over if you get distracted. You only have to get count and start your counting over if you completely lose track. Okay? So let's just do this for a few minutes. And then I'm going to give you an E, which is inquiry or examination. Inquiry. Okay? So let's do this for a few minutes. Center.
I want you to look at the mind itself. No matter what's occurring in your mind, to see that it's all in the nature of clarity. See if you can get a feeling for the clarity. What, what that means is that everything is occurring in the mind. Whether your mind is distracted or peaceful, clear or cloudy, it's all in the nature of clarity. It's all happening in the sky of your mind, okay? Just see everything occurring in the mind itself. Even my voice, the sounds, is all happening in your mind, in the mind, experienced in the mind. Doesn't mean I'm in your mind, but your experience is in your mind. And if you get distracted, which you will, just bring it back to this quality of watching everything occurring in the mind, as if it's a new experience you never knew before, okay? In the background is your awareness of the breath. All experience is mind, the wandering is mind, the darkness is mind, the clarity is mind, the sound is mind, experienced in your mind. Okay, when you're just to settle being back in duality, <laughs> we'll continue for a few minutes. 
And before, while we're ending this meditation, have a sense of appreciation. Even if it was tough or easy, this appreciation that, wow, there's a whole world to discover. Anyone want to uh, comment on something? Any questions or or observations? You don't have to, but I'm just wondering. I just do so much talking, I get tired of hearing my voice. I think that meditation did a it created this place where space exists. Mm-hmm. And then within that, to know that that's where everything gets perceived was like, finally allowed me to watch. You know, they say, don't follow your, or don't, don't control your breath, follow your breath. Mm-hmm. Observe your breath. Mm-hmm. No, don't control your meditation. Let things come up. And all of a sudden there was this defined space of where, oh, okay, that's where things could be without the me. Yeah. It's interesting. Pretty cool. Without reacting. Mm-hmm. Anybody else? So, um, when we do this more and more, I wasn't going to put too much on <laughs> on you now, but then can you know, anybody notice how automatically you follow stuff in your mind, whether it's pleasurable or not, that there's a kind of a moving towards things or moving away from them? Do people notice that? that? The reason I bring that up is that's where attachment and aversion arise. That's how they work on a subtle level. It's very hard to just let things arise and fall away, <clears throat> isn't it? Anyone have that problem? I get distracted a lot. Mm-hmm. So distraction is natural, right? So when you get distracted, are you uh, are you just is the emotion or the thing that's arising an attachment attachment or aversion? Usually when I get distracted, oh, it's both. It depends on my mood. But I'm thinking, I'm leaning more towards something that's more pleasant. Yeah, attachment. Mm-hmm. It's like a lot of daydreaming. Right. So daydreaming, yeah. It's a habit, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Why do we do it? Why do we do it? 
Well, for me, I started since I was like really young. Like I think when I was eight years old, like every night when I go to bed, I would just like make a, a sequel or some kind of episode in my mind while I go to sleep. And it's just, it, I've been doing it every day, like since then. And it just became so ingrained. Right. So, so if you watch it, like now, now you have something to study. So the thing to study is uh, if it's attraction or aversion, there's going to be one, other, it could be ignorance, you know, it could be neutral, probably not. Uh, neutral is a kind of a darkness, you know, and ignorance is kind of a darkness. Whereas uh, daydreaming tends to be kind of exciting or interesting. So that's probably attachment. So that's the mental affliction of attachment. Okay. Moving towards, moving towards, moving towards. So it's a good thing. Just all you do is watch it and go, wow, that's interesting. Mm. I think watch it for, for me, like the most distraction I get is like kind of imagining I'm back with my ex-boyfriend and we're doing this and then right. having a good time. And then like, I think about how much he annoys me and then it becomes a version. Right. <laughs> it, it's amazing. And then it's I'm amazing. glad that we're not together. And then like the next day I'm like, Oh, I, you know, he's not such a bad guy and you know, we right. could be friends and it just kind of goes on and it's, it's really annoying. So, so what's how, so as we get more into this uh, analysis, which is what meditation really is, it's really, analysis might not be the right word, but you know, this uh, discriminative think, you know, this analytical think, uh, analyzing, deconstructing. Um, what happens is so this is so exciting, but but it, it takes time. What you'll notice is that Vanessa, what will rise is a mental image of your boyfriend. Or a mental image of you guys together, like a memory. But a memory is a mental image, actually. And then, at, without it's because we're out of control. We don't see it as a mental image. We see it as my boyfriend. Oh yeah, there he is. You know, of course we can say, I know it's not him. It's just in my mind. That's not. That's just intellectualizing. We're not really interested in intellectualizing at this stage. We're in. I mean, at this in this practice. This is the practice of experience. So the experience is a mental image probably arises. And that mental image feels, going back to that, this thing. Sorry, my computer just went a little slow. Okay. This is what's happening. Your mental consciousness is engaging with a mental image. So the sense organ in this sense is, is the, the mental sense organ. The object is the mental image of your boyfriend, okay? And this feels, I got to fix those slides, Lee, but <laughs> those, those uh, you know, let's just say, it's a, so it's, it leads to an agreeable sensation in the sense that, oh, I really love being with him, you know, that mental image, I'm talking, not, not the disagreeable one, it can be any one of those, okay? Then, you, then what happens is this thing. Oops, sorry. This thing. You stick to it. Mm-hmm. The next thing you know, you've lost count of your breath. <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> right? You're on 15 and you're only supposed to be at 10. But if the object is the mind itself, and you're watching this process, and then pretty soon you forgot that you're watching it, and you're thinking about how, oh, yeah, you know, that mental image came up that attracted you, and then another mental image comes up about when you remember that you know, he forgot to call you back and he was real, you know, right? 
and then it changes it's the changes to an aversion it's just mental image that's what's so fascinating it's just mental stuff but we create this world that's this cling grass old stick yeah so is that the same idea as watching a movie and you get so emotionally invested but really what it exactly is exactly the same exactly um, well okay. exactly the same but yes yeah we're not seeing conventional reality actually is what it you know if you really want to get technical we're not seeing things as they are okay what did Aeneas, Aeneas Nin say? We don't see things as they are. We see things as we are. Okay. That's what we're doing all the time. Okay. Now, what if in your process of meditation, you actually saw it was a mental image? You know, it wasn't him. It's a mental image. What would that be like? Uh, we don't see things as we okay Karina can you say that question again yeah about, uh, what would it be like to see conventional reality so conventionally what we're well it's not all conventional reality what I was saying is what would it be like if you saw what's arising in the mind as a mental image because when arise in the mind, we say it's real. And <clears throat> we're hypnotized and we think, oh, I mean, you don't, you know, this is not true. But at the time, oh, there's my boyfriend. That's what's happening. As if he's there. Or it's the same thing with the coronavirus. We're, we're dealing with a mental image. We're not even dealing with the coronavirus. We, none of us have ever seen it anyway. Have any of us seen the coronavirus? No. We might see people on the news that are sick or friends that are sick. Maybe we know someone who's died. Okay, but what is the coronavirus that we're all talking about? It's a mental image. We've constructed it. It's a construction. So when we deal with uh, the, training the mind in this meditation, is understanding how the mind works. So one of the ways the mind works is it constructs things all the time. And the other part of the way the mind works, the afflictions, Affliction says those constructions are not constructions, those constructions are real. It doesn't say that, by the way, it just acts that way. Okay, is that an answer your question, Lauren? Um, yeah, because I was thinking about you were talking about Vanessa's memory of her boyfriend being. A mental image. But well, let me then, ask you if this. her boyfriend was in the room with her, yeah, that is also a mental image that she is laying on top of a a physical object, which That's is right. you know, which is another label. But right, so yeah, the physical object with mental image boyfriend and a memory with mental image boyfriend have the same amount of realness slash not realness well the the it can have double non-realness in the fantasizing because yeah. he's not even in the room and we think he is right 
But yeah. you brought up a really, really important point that we weren't going to get to to next week is that we do not experience the boyfriend even when he's in the room. Mm-hmm. You're right. And that's, you know, you know that from your study, uh, we don't experience, we experience a, con- a concept or mental image of the boyfriend, but we're not even in, like right now, you and I are not, not in contact actually with each other. We're in contact with the mental fabrication that my mind is creating. And it's always doing that. To have a bare experience of what's going on is very is a very subtle mind, and it's a very you know that does develop through meditation, where you're having you know you can have a bare experience, but you, you, each experience does have a mental image that arises immediately with it, and that really is not the that's a, that's the problem for us because we don't even know that. But later, that's not really the problem because that's, that's the way mind functions. And later on, the, the meditator or the whatever you want to call the wiser person knows that's happening and can actually perceive it. And it's fine because that's the way the mind will work. It's the fact that we don't know it that is the problem. And we don't perceive it, I should say. Not only we don't know it, we don't perceive things that way. I think I'm really seeing you know, your pictures there. And, you know, I don't, I'm not, I don't remember, I don't experience that it's a flashing of mental images. And other things, I mean, there's other things I'm seeing right now that are wrong as well. Again, next week, we'll cover that. All this wrong. So we're seeing, we never see, we don't see what's there. Okay. We don't see what's actually there. What is Geshe, my, one of my friends, teachers, Geshe, Geshe Gelek is a Geshe in uh, uh, in North Carolina, and he has a nice way of saying. It. He says, "We don't see what is there, and we do see what isn't there." Okay. We don't see what is there, and we do see what isn't there. <laughs> you can ask me about that next week. Well, and just based on that, it makes sense why we're so mistaken. Mistaken. Because as humans, it's like easier for us to see, or it's easier for us to notice what we can, like, you know, experience versus what we're not experiencing. And then that, I'm kind of garbling that, but. Yeah. You know. It is easier. Yeah. But we have to recognize that, right? That's a big deal. So we have to recognize we have to recognize what we're seeing is wrong, and we have to understand that. That's the first step, actually. Lama Yeshi used to say, "Don't worry so much about seeing reality; just recognize what you're seeing is not reality." Is seeing That's, interchangeable with experiencing in this? Yeah. Yes, because when we say seeing, we could be hearing as well or tasting or whatever. Yeah. Okay, I think that's good for now. Everyone is everyone exhausted and asleep. <laughs> okay, so uh, like we said at the beginning, we generated a bazillions, trillions, I don't know if that many, uh, imprints. So just reflect for a moment. 
uh, to make sort of a conscious, I don't know, it's not a wish, but, you know, a conscious mode, uh, dedication, I guess, that these imprints would be used for generating a healthy mind, wise mind, an understanding mind, uh, so that not our, our own well-being is eternal in the sense of clarifying and purifying and making the mind healthy forever and that this has a great benefit on all those we care about as well we want to be helpful to them and all the other people that don't have much idea about this kind of stuff and then of course all living beings we come into contact with that their hearts can open and our hearts continue to open infinitely Okay. Anything else? Did I forget something? Okay. No, thank you so much. Thank you very, very much. And homework. Thanks, homework. Oh God, no, I, I didn't think of anything. So it'd be contrived if I do. But I would. I, it would be. It would be interesting if you can. Thank you, Denise. It would be interesting if you could just go a little. Keep doing that meditation, even just for a few minutes, or even while you're at. You know, wherever, you know, you can do it wherever you are, which is seeing, here's what I would say to try and do. See everything that you're experiencing as experienced in the mind. I'm not saying things aren't there out there, but this is a training. So exactly like my voice, we think, or even like I see your pictures. We think I'm seeing you out there, right? But when you really analyze, where's the picture, where's... Where are you seeing me? You've seen me. You, you have to have a consciousness to see me, right? So the experience of the image is where? In your mind or out there? It has to be one or the other. Right? But if only out there, then there's no experience if there's no consciousness. Right? So the consciousness, just see that everything that you that you experienced this week, try just even for a minute, a moment, actually, I should say, try and see, oh, as if it's internal, mental. Just get in touch with the mental experience of all this ex that we think is external, okay? I'll try it too, okay? I have to try it too. Okay, see you. Thank you so much. <laughs>